we're so glad that you decided to join us this morning from your couch, um, that you decided that you'd uh, spend some of your valuable time on Mother's Day with us. We're really thankful for that. My name is David. I work with our uh, facilities and with our youth ministry here at Heritage. Well, this morning we're going to be asking this question. What do I do when God does not answer the way that I want it? How do I respond when God doesn't give me what I asked for? If you've been walking with God for more than a few minutes, you've probably asked this question many times. Sometimes we don't get our way in the smaller things. Maybe we've been asking God for this winter to be over, but we get snow in the beginning of May. Maybe our plans for the day are wrecked, or maybe our dinner gets burned in the oven. But this also can happen in those bigger moments of life. Maybe you had great plans for what Mother's Day would look like, and that got totally destroyed with this stay-at-home order. Maybe you desperately want a, a promotion or a new job, and you're not really sure if you can take much more of where you're at now. Maybe you're a want-to-be mother who's been waiting years for a child. Maybe you're a senior who is really looking forward to graduation and all the fun things that come along with that, but all of that's been robbed from you this year. Maybe you have a loved one who's recently diagnosed with a mental illness and you just wish that life could go back to normal, that your relationship with them could go back to what it used to look like. Maybe you've lost somebody recently after asking God to heal them. Maybe this is going to be the first Mother's Day without someone. All of us have had God say no or hold on or I have a better plan. I can remember the pain of walking through my sister's miscarriage. Ruth was newly married. She was loving life with her husband. Uh, and they got the news that they were pregnant and they were overjoyed. And of course, a little bit intimidated too, right? All of us were so excited. And as we do, as we all do, right? We prayed for a healthy baby. We prayed for a healthy mom. And around the same time, my other sister, Amy, also got pregnant, also with their first. And so the, the two of them were kind of walking this journey together. They were so excited. And I can remember that the, all, everything was positive and everything was healthy. All the checkups went well. There was nothing that we knew that we needed to be concerned about. The doctors weren't concerned at all. She uh, got to the 12-week the mark, which, before which the vast majority of issues with pregnancy happened before that, and she got to that without any problems. And so we were excited, and we were, of course, as we all do, still praying, God, give us a healthy baby, give us a healthy mom. But then at her 17-week routine checkup, she found out that her baby didn't have a heartbeat. She found out her baby boy was dead. And to this day, we're not totally sure what happened, though we have some guesses. And later that day, she had to deliver Samuel David Edmondson's lifeless little body. I can still remember holding him. He was only about the size of my hand. And we were at a loss for words. What do you even say to a mom as she holds her lifeless baby? This was not the answer from God that we wanted. Within a few months, Ruth got pregnant again. And this time we were a little more hesitant with our joy, right? 
She was considered high risk because she just lost Samuel. And so they monitored everything very closely. And our family was praying like crazy. God, please give us a healthy baby. Protect her. Protect Ruth. Protect the baby. And then when Ruth was six weeks pregnant, she lost the baby. Avery Lee Edmondson went to be with Jesus. And this time there wasn't even a lifeless body to hold. Our family was, again, at a loss. We had questions. We were hurting. This was not the answer from God that we wanted. So what are we to do when we face these situations? What do we do when the cancer returns, when we lose a friend, when we get the diagnosis that we dreaded, when good friends move away? What do we do when God doesn't answer the way that we want? Where do we go with our pain and with our questions? Does the Bible even have any helpful answers for us? in these moments. Well, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that will answer this question for us. And so please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 12 and then read through chapter 2, verse 1. And if you've joined us for the past couple of weeks, you might remember that so far in chapter 1, what we've seen is Habakkuk cry out to God in verses 1 through 4, and then God responds in verses 5 through 11. Habakkuk asks how God could allow the injustice that he sees in Judah to continue. Why is God allowing their sin to go unchecked? Well, God responds that he is not going to let it go unchecked, that he's actually raising up the Babylonians, a fierce military power, to bring his judgment on the people of Judah for their sin. And from Habakkuk's response in our text for today, we can see that this was not the answer that he wanted. This was not what he was hoping for. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I got a direct response from God, I think I'd be pretty happy. But we'll see that Habakkuk is not very happy. Instead, he's actually got more questions for God. Evidently, this was not the answer that he wanted. And so in the last part of chapter 1, we'll see him cry out to God again. And in this cry, we have an example for how we can respond when God doesn't answer how we want it. Glenn has said that the theme of the book is living by faith from chapter 2, verse 4. And so, how do we live by faith when God doesn't answer how we want it? How do we respond in faith? Well, in this text, we'll see Habakkuk take three steps to respond in faith that we can follow. I think that many of us want to respond well in these moments, but we just don't know how. Well, let's see what Habakkuk can teach us. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and he burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? 
I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So how do we respond when God does not answer the way we would like him to? Well, the first step to respond in faith is to turn to God. The first step to respond in faith is to turn to God. Notice what Habakkuk does here in verse 12. He addresses God. He turns to God in prayer, even though he's just gotten an answer from God that he does not like. God is going to allow a brutal nation to destroy the people of Judah. Habakkuk is not happy about this, but what does he do? He takes his issue to God. He starts with a rhetorical question that demands a yes answer. He's really saying that God is, in fact, from everlasting. And the word that he uses there for everlasting is, is a, not the typical word that you'd use for eternal or for everlasting. It can also be translated as from the east. You see, in the Hebrew culture, they saw the east as symbolizing the past or the beginning. And so when he says, are you not from everlasting, what he's focusing on is the fact that God has always been God. And he's also fact, focusing on God's past dealings with the nation of Israel. He's reminding himself that God is not new to being God. This is not his first time. This is not his first trip around the block. He has always been God. And next he remembers God's personal relationship with him. This is not just any God or any holy one. Look at what he says. He says, this is my God. This is my holy one. This is not a distant, uncaring God, but a God who Habakkuk can refer to as his home. He had a closeness with God, and here he remembers that relationship. And next he calls God a rock. A rock is something that is stable. It's a good foundation. It's something that is not easily moved. It can't be, uh, it can withstand the test of time and the storms of life, right? And this metaphor of a rock is often used in the Old Testament. You might recognize this psalm. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And so when Habakkuk calls God a rock, he's saying that God is firm, that he's unshakable, that he's reliable. He reminds himself that God is a strong fortress, a reliable protector, that no matter what the storms of life might throw at him, he can cling to the rock that is God. And so I want you to notice who Habakkuk directs his questions to. Habakkuk does not ask his friends what they think. He does not find the leading thinkers and scholars of the day and ask them his questions. He doesn't try to just reason it all out by himself, trusting in his own ability to figure it out. No, no, no. He takes his questions to the only one who's able to help them. He takes his questions to God. And so when God answers our prayers in a way that we do not like, we need to follow Habakkuk's example and take our issues to God. We must not go first to our friends. We must not go first to our favorite pastor or teacher or leader. We must not go first to the latest articles or books or messages. We must not try to turn inward and just trust in our own ability to figure it out. Those things aren't bad. Those are all good gifts from God. But when we turn to those things first, instead of turning to God, we can begin to trust in those things more than we do in God. It can actually become an idol in our life where we think that they are our Savior. And we trust that more than we do God. And they can slowly, without us realizing it, begin to take the place of God in our hearts. And so when those dark clouds form, we need to turn to God. Well, the second step to respond in faith is to ask. 
Habakkuk asks three questions in verses 13 through 17, and surrounding his questions, what he does is he gives basically a reasoning for those questions. God's response earlier in the chapter, in verses 5 through 11, had raised more questions for Habakkuk because the Babylonians were worse than Judah. I mean, it seems like the cure is worse than the illness, God. What are you doing? He, he knew that God cannot tolerate wrongdoing, and so it didn't make sense to him to use Babylon, a people who were known for all kinds of wrongdoing. Habakkuk doesn't understand, and so he asks God, why? And Habakkuk, in, here in verse 13, is changed who he's referring to when he says, the wicked. If you remember back in verse 4, he'd used that same term. But there, when he said the wicked, he was referring to the unrighteous people within Judah. And now when he says the wicked, he's referring to the Babylonians. So the Babylonians are now the wicked. And when he says those who are more righteous than them, he's referring to Judah. Habakkuk understands that, yes, the people of Judah have sinned, but surely the Babylonians are far worse. God, what are you doing? I don't understand. How could God do nothing while the wicked overcome the righteous? This doesn't seem to be in line with what Habakkuk knows to be true about God. And so he asks God why. In verses 14 through 17, Habakkuk seems to kind of make a case before God for why in his mind what God is doing just doesn't seem to be in line with his character. He uses figurative language to state the problem in verse 14. He describes the outcomes of the problem in verses 15 and 16. And then finally in verse 17, he asks if God's just going to allow this problem to continue. In verse 14, Habakkuk is basically saying that God has set up Israel to be conquered. How he's ordered the natural world makes it possible for all people to be captured as easily as we can catch fish in a net or with a hook. Or as easily as we can catch creatures that have no one to lead them seems to Habakkuk like God was actively preparing for their destruction. And then in verse 15, the fish metaphor continues, picturing Babylon as the fisherman and Judah and other nations as the fish. Babylon is conquering nations without mercy, pulling them up with hooks and with nets. And these are symbolic of judgment and conquest, both in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East. Now Babylon's military conquest causes them to rejoice and be glad. They're conquering nations, and guess what? They're happy in their sin and in their wickedness. And then in verse 16, the problem gets even worse as the wicked now celebrate their sin. The wicked one is now sacrificing to his weapons, which was, again, a common practice in ancient nations. And the wicked were now going to glory in the victory by worshiping the very weapons that they think give them the power to overcome the enemy. And finally, in verse 17, after describing the horrible state of things, Habakkuk essentially asks God, are you going to just sit there and watch while they destroy nations without mercy? Are you going to let this continue forever? Habakkuk ends these verses with the same way he began, with question and with lament. He asks if God is going to continue to allow this evil to go on unchecked and unchallenged. And so the case that Habakkuk makes before God in these verses is essentially this. God, you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. But you just told me that you are going to use wicked Babylon to punish Judah. That certainly seems like allowing wrongdoing to me. Why are you doing this? You seem to be setting Judah up to be captured by wicked Babylon with no judgment on them for their sin. These people are wicked and they're going to worship the very things they use to destroy your covenant people. Will you allow this to go on forever? Aren't you going to do something about it? 
in these verses, we see that Habakkuk takes his questions to God. He turns first to God, and then he asks very, very honest questions. He points out what he knows to be true of God and how what God has said he's going to do just doesn't really seem to him to be in line with who God is. And so he's brutally honest with his questions. But here's what I want to point out. The fact that he asks why God would do this means that he believes that God does in fact have a reason. He asks God why knowing that there's an answer. He does not question if God has a reason, but what that reason is. This is not how could you or how dare you. This is a genuine question that arises from the heart of a man who trusts that God is good. He trusts that God has a reason for what he's doing, but he just can't see it. He doesn't understand. And so what we see in Habakkuk's prayer is what we call lament. Lament is unfortunately not a very familiar topic for a lot of Christians today, but laments take up a third of the Psalms the entire book of Lamentations, and they're found scattered all throughout the Bible, including here in Habakkuk. We don't really like lament because it requires us giving attention to grief and to pain, and for whatever reason, we've accepted this lie that we have to be happy and positive all the time. Our culture is uncomfortable with grief, but as Christians, we don't have to fear dealing with pain. Because laments give the people of God the permission to take our pains to God and trust that he will deal with them. Even if dealing with them means he's going to help us through them instead of removing them. One writer said that it is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for answers. You see, we need to talk to God rather than just about God. We don't have to be afraid to ask the God of the universe the questions that keep us up at night. We don't have to avoid God when we have pains that distract us all through the day. We don't have to put on this facade of having it all together in our relationship with him. Guess what? That never fooled him anyway. God is not afraid of your questions. He's not too proud or too busy for you to lay out the burdens of your heart. He's big enough to handle your questions and your pains. Sometimes we think we can't go to God when we have questions. When we feel that he's abandoned us or when he doesn't answer us the way we'd like him to. Our misunderstanding of lament causes us to think that we have to deal with these issues on our own before we're good enough to go back to God. And that is so unfortunate because it leaves us with no biblical course of action for those feelings of pain and and distrust and doubt and uncertainty And so all we're left with is denial or suppression of those feelings. Which only lead to bitterness and outright just walking away from God. But laments help us deal with emotions and questions in a way that actually honors God and enables us to move from focusing only on our pain to trusting God in the middle of our pain. You can actually see this happen right here in chapter 1. In verse 3, Habakkuk had lamented about God tolerating wrongdoing. But look at what he says in verse 13. He uses three of the same words, look, tolerate, and wrongdoing. And in verse 3, he's questioning, but in verse 13, he is confidently stating. So let me just read the beginning of those verses for you. Verse 3 says this, Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And then look down at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So what has changed between these verses? Absolutely nothing 
about his external circumstances have changed. Judah is still in sin, and Babylon is still coming to judge them. Nothing about his external circumstances have changed, but what has changed is Habakkuk's perspective as he lamented. In the process of lament, he was able to move from questioning to trust, from doubt to faith. You see, that's what lament does. There's a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy that's an excellent resource on lament. I would highly recommend it. Again, that's Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And I want to share just one lesson I learned from that author. He says this, Lament becomes the path between the poles of a hard life and trusting God's goodness. Becomes the path between the poles of a hard life and trusting God's goodness. Lament helps us embrace two truths at the same time. Hard is hard. Hard is not bad. I'll say that again. Hard is hard. Hard is not bad. And so lament can help us distinguish between what is hard and what is bad. We can actually learn to say that something is both good and hard. See, sometimes God allows things in our lives that we would never have asked for, but that he works for good. Laments help us find the good in those hard situations. They enable us to find deep mercy in those dark clouds. Church, we need to learn to lament, to ask God our questions. If we're ever going to respond in faith when he doesn't answer the way that we want him to. Well, so far we've seen that Habakkuk has turned to God and he's asked his questions and so now he has a choice to make. Will he allow his struggles and his questions to let him turn from God or to God? Well, we can see from the posture that he takes that he has chosen the latter, that he's going to turn to God and await for an answer. And so the third step to respond in faith is to position yourself for an answer. Chapter 2, verse 1, we see that Habakkuk positions himself like a watchman to wait on the Lord's answer to his questions. Let me read that verse for you again. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And the word for complaint that he uses there could also really be translated as argument or reproof. It's as if Habakkuk is saying, okay, I've laid my argument or my case before God and now I'm going to wait for him to answer me. He's fulfilling one of the roles of the prophet to have a, a watchful vigilance like a guard or a watchman. Prophets were to watch for a word from God and then take that word to the people. And so Habakkuk waits on God. We don't really like to wait on anything, do we? We feel that waiting is a waste of time. We feel like we're not doing anything, which is a cardinal sin in our culture, right? You always got to be busy with something. But the reality is that while we wait, God is working. As Glenn said last week, God is always at work, so waiting on God is never a waste. So what do we do while we wait? Well, notice that Habakkuk was waiting for God to respond, but he's also working on himself. He says that he will look to see what answer he will give to God. He's not just passively waiting for God to answer. He's actively waiting and making sure that he's ready to respond. And I would imagine this would include things like reading whatever copies of the Old Testament scriptures he might have had available to him, rehearsing whatever portions of the Old Testament he would have had memorized as a good Jew, 
meditating on God's word, spending time in prayer, making sure that he was walking closely with God so that he was ready to hear him and to answer him. And so how do we position ourselves for an answer? How are we to actively wait today? I'd like to suggest three things. First, we need to spend time with God. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to keep talking to God. We need to not give up on prayer just because he didn't answer us how we wanted last time. You see, this is one of the beauties of lament is that it helps you to pray again. The only other option is silence towards God. Or again, suppression or denial of those feelings. And that never leads anywhere but bitterness and apathy and turning away from God completely. Because if you don't deal with those feelings and those questions, you're going to start to believe the lie of the enemy that God does not have your good in his mind and in his heart. You're not going to run to someone that you don't trust. And so as we're waiting for an answer, we need to continue to pray. Secondly, we need to spend time with God's word. We need to read the Bible. We can't expect to get an answer from God if we're not listening to him. And his word, the Bible, is how he speaks to us today. So how would we expect to get an answer if we're not in his word? That requires more than just cracking our Bibles open on Sundays during a message. People who are in the word every single day, looking to learn, looking to apply it to our lives, meditating on it, reflecting on it. We need to spend time in God's word. And last, we need to spend time with God's people. We need to be involved in church. Now, obviously, that looks totally different in this time of social distancing, but we can still be connected to God's people. God gave us community for a reason. Our walk with him was never designed to be a solo pursuit. Oftentimes, I think it's through a friend that God's going to choose to answer our question. I've found that many times in my life, it's while talking with someone else that that moment of clarity comes. Probably many of the spiritual highs in your life, I'd be willing to bet, were somehow connected to a conversation. It may have been a message or a book or an article that sparked that conversation, but it was while talking with a brother or sister in Christ that that final moment of clarity or that final moment of decision actually came. That's so often how God chooses to work. That's how he uses the body. And so we need to spend time with God's people if we're going to position ourselves for an answer. I need to make sure I'm clear on this. I am, I am not guaranteeing that you will always get an answer to every single one of your questions. Sometimes you will, but God has not promised to reveal everything to us. And if you look at Habakkuk, he doesn't really get a satisfying answer for why God chooses to use the Babylonians. He does answer Habakkuk's second question, if their evil will go unchecked, but he never says, Habakkuk, here's the reason I'm allowing the Babylonians to be the judgment for the people of Judah's sin. God could have certainly used other means to judge them for their sin, but he chose the Babylonians. And he never really gives Habakkuk a reason why. Instead, Habakkuk gets a revelation of the kind of God that he serves in verse, or, excuse me, chapter 3. And he stands in awe of him, trusting that his reasons are good. This is one of the beauties of lament. In lament, we don't have to know why before we trust God. Laments end in trust even though nothing about the external circumstances have changed. We don't need all our questions answered before we trust God. We can choose to trust him no matter what our current or even our future circumstances may hold because we know that God is good and all that he does is good. 
Hard is hard. Hard is not bad. So when God allows something that is hard, it doesn't mean that he ceased to be good. So how do we respond in faith when God doesn't answer how we wanted? Well, we follow Habakkuk's example. We turn to God, we ask our questions, and we position ourselves for an answer. We may not always get an exact answer to every question, but in the process we will discover the joy of walking with God in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the uncertainty. When dark clouds form, we need to learn to lament. We need to learn to look for deep mercy and dark clouds. As my family walked through the pain of losing Samuel and then Avery, I think we slowly learned to take these steps. We began to find the mercy in those clouds. Some of you might know that Ruth got pregnant again, and this time with twins. On November 5th of last year, she gave birth to two beautiful little girls. They're the best. In some ways, they were kind of the sun breaking through those clouds. But in a lot of ways, those clouds remain. We're still separated from two members of our family. We still don't know why Ruth is a mother of four, but only gets to hold two of her babies. Why would God allow this? Why did he need to take Samuel and Avery? Well, the short answer is that we don't know. But we do know that God is good and that all that he does is good, even if it doesn't feel very good in the moment. And as we've lamented, we've learned afresh the joy of walking with God, trusting him in the middle of our pain. You see, there's a level of intimacy with God that only comes from walking with him through those dark valleys. We've been able to find this very strange joy in the middle of pain. It's a joy that doesn't really make sense, and it's so hard to describe, especially if you've not been there. Something you would never ask for, but you're still able to rejoice in the love that God shows under those dark clouds. We obviously wouldn't have asked to lose Samuel and Avery, but we can rejoice in knowing that God sees, God knows, God cares, and God is good. So heritage, let us learn to lament. When God doesn't answer us how we would like him to, when he allows those dark clouds in our lives, let's turn to him, let's ask our questions, and let's position ourselves for an answer. Let's look for that deep mercy in those dark clouds. Let me pray. God, sometimes you allow things into our lives that we just don't like. Sometimes you answer us in a way that we just weren't hoping for. And maybe this Mother's Day is particularly hard for some. You've allowed a a set of circumstances that wouldn't really be ideal for celebrating our mothers. Some of us can't even see them. God, it feels like there is injustice in the land. It feels like this shutdown is just ridiculous. Sometimes it feels arbitrary, what's allowed and what's not, and we just, we don't know what to do. But God, we know that you are good, and that all that you do is good. 
God, we ask for healing for our land. We ask that you would move in amazing ways. We know you are the God of the impossible. And so, God, that we ask that you would allow this virus to pass overnight. God, we ask that you'd allow our leaders to make good decisions that lead to the flourishing of people. But God, no matter what comes, we can trust you because we know that you are good and all that you have done is good. God, we thank you so much for Jesus who makes it possible for us to have joy and peace and hope in the middle of pain. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please let us know if we can be uh, praying for you or if you need anything, or even if you just want to talk to someone about those dark clouds in your life. If you're watching this on our website, you can scroll down, as Scott said, and you can find several different ways to engage with us. So please, please reach out to us if you need anything. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, and we hope that you have a great day.